Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. And welcome to episode 000162 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm going to be your host, broadcasting to you from the one and only Radio City Docklands, which is, of course is on Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present and any mob that are listening tonight. And I remind us all that we are living on what always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, um, on to tonight's show. We have another special show for you tonight. We have the one and only Dr. Anita Heiss AM on the show to talk about the re-release of her book, Am I Black Enough for You? 10 Years On. There's lots of interesting ideas and concepts in that book, which are just as relevant today as they have ever been. So she'll be in town, actually, on Friday the 1st of July for a lunchtime in-conversation event which we'll give out details to later on when we speak to her in a few moments' time. So stick around for that. Now, uh, the world continues to uh, spin, and as we move into the new parliament, we're seeing some of the more sensationalist arms of the media beginning to try and get their heads around this notion. And that notion is, lo and behold, not all Aboriginal people agree with each other. Just let that uh, sink in for, for a few minutes there. Not all Aboriginal people agree with each other on all things. Now, sometimes these disagreements can range from mechanics around trying to achieve a voice to parliament, or sometimes they can actually be as fundamentally different as to whether we should actually have a voice to parliament at all. These are views that are held within the community across this great big brown land of ours, and um, it stands to reason. We're not all the same. We don't all agree. We don't all speak from the same or sing from the same uh, hymn sheet. But it seems that some in the media are only just getting their head around this concept. Uh, The reason I raise it here, of course, is because the Triple R audience is far more reasoned and nuanced around its thinking on these issues. And when we know that democracy at the best of times and politics at the best of times is a very robust business, and if elements of the media try to play our First Nations parliamentarians off against each other through simplistic misrepresentation of views and sometimes facts and figures, then we risk the debate on so many important issues related to my mob being stuck in a quagmire in the minds of the broader electorate. So what do I raise this here? Well, I raise this here because if we spot this as an emerging trend early on, and if anyone's watched the nightly newses tonight, uh, the commercial newses, you'll see it's already happening. If you're listening to um, commercial radio about the place or seeing posts from some of those commercial radio stations on social media, you will see that words like two, two Indigenous senators are at war with each other. This relates, of course, to the showing of flags or the non-showing of the Australian flag at uh, a Greens press conference uh, earlier this week. Um, So just because we have a more progressive parliament, a more progressive parliament that we've had in many years, doesn't mean that huge slabs of the media have caught up with that progress. And so we will continue to be a little, I guess, 
a little media watch, a little uh, Koori media watch here on the uh, Triple R grid as we move through the various election cycles, remembering that there is an election cycle coming up in Victoria in November. Now, speaking of Victoria and speaking of progressive, we see that the Victorian opposition, as the age is reporting, has stared down internal dissent from a small number of MPs and has committed to support the Andrews government's plans for an independent body that will oversee treaty negotiations with the First Nations people. Uh, that's despite disgraced, this is me now, <laughs> that's despite great disgraced uh, MP uh, Tim Smith threatening to cross the floor of Parliament because it goes against, and I quote here, his liberal values. Now, I could tear off here. I could. I could get the two before out, but I won't. I'd be, I'd be wasting precious time and the airwaves of the 102.7 FM frequency on someone as irrelevant as Mr Smith. But it's just interesting to see that some of those views are still harboured within the Victorian opposition, but good on them, as much as I rarely say that, but good on them for actually coming to the party on this because it is an historic moment and you can either be on the right side of history or you can be on the wrong side of history. And the wrong side of history when it comes to this is not having a go at all. So things are happening federally and here in the state now known as Victoria, and as always, this program, your program, to uh, be a little bit commercial there for a sec, we'll try and keep abreast of it all as best we can in our little one-hour slot allotted to us on this mighty grid that is Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Uh, Professor Anita Heiss is a proud Wiradjuri woman, but she's also many, many other things. Now, when I was trying to put together a short introduction and a biography for her uh, leading up to this conversation this evening, it's not easy because she does and has done a lot of things. She's a prolific author across genres, including historical fiction, commercial fiction, poetry, short stories and children's stories. Her writing also extends to articles and social commentary and travel. She has won or been nominated for multiple awards over the years. She's a satirist, passionate um, activist, and is an ambassador for several causes and organisations, including the Go Foundation, Warrawa Aboriginal College here in Melbourne, and is a lifetime ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. Um, amongst all that, she's found time for a stellar career in academia after completing a Bachelor of Arts degree in 1989. Um, she's now currently the head of um, uh, Professor of Communications at the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit in the University of Queensland. She's a marathon runner. Uh, and as her title suggests, she's just one a member of the order, an AM, for significant service to tertiary Indigenous studies and the arts. Now, she's going to be down here in Nam on Friday the 1st of July for an in-conversation event between 12 and 2 p.m. at uh, the Queen Victoria Women's Centre Trust in, in Lonsdale Street. We'll give out details later in um, our discussion about how to get tickets to that event, but she'll be discussing Am I Black Enough for You 10 years on. Um, lunch will be provided by the Moroccan Soup Bar, yum, 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 and all money from ticket sales will go to support Aboriginal organisations and there'll be discounted tickets for First Nations people. Getting that all out all the way, I'm very pleased to say Anita is on the line now, live from her bed in Queensland. Anita, <laughs> welcome back to the mission. Oh, 
Mung Yuya, good evening. I'm, you know, I'm chuckling about so much in that introduction. We could just spend the next half an hour talking about that. But thank you for having me on. And yes, I am in my bed in my swan's jammies because yes. by Brisbane standards, it's actually quite chilly up here. And what are we, um, what are we I, saying in terms of chilly? What are we what are we talking in terms of chilly? Oh gosh. I don't know. Well, colder people. People have fires burning here at twenty degrees. But I think I went out to run this morning. I know when I got here, I was in short sleeves, and, yeah. and I could smell wood fires. And people are in boots and scarves. And I thought, these people are crazy. I can swim in twenty degrees. But uh, we'd had a cold snap, like everybody else. Um, and so I think I went out this morning to run at about nine or ten degrees. So that was that's really cold for Brizzy, and it's, um, it's, and so on a bit. We, it's, it's, it it feels like temperature here narrow of um, eight point six, and that's actually quite balmy oh, okay. compared to where we've had it in the last <laughs> few weeks. All oh, right, okay. So, um, but thank you for that lovely introduction. And I was, I did have to double check that you were calling me because last time I think we did this as a, didn't we do it through the website? And we, you know, we did. Yeah, we did it as a live stream. Yeah, which I believe still up, that. <laughs> which I believe is still up on um on the website, but it would have been yeah, it would have been very orcs if I if we were crossing to you yeah, in your yeah, swan's no. jammies in bed via no live stream. No makeup on. You're, you're, <laughs> I've got I've got a, I'm looking really good for radio. Let's just say that. <laughs> and when I was listening to the introduction, I was thinking to myself. Oh my God, he's making me sound so old. There was something about 1989. I can't even remember what it was. I mean, I am old. What was your degree? It was your first degree. But on my undergrad, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, your undergrad. Arts. Yeah. Yeah. Were you born? (laughs) I was born, yes, yes. I was. I was. um, I was in primary school, but I was born. Which is oh um, which is important. Really? I was kind of joking, but there you go. Anyway, um, <laughs> so thank you for having me on. I'm very excited to be here. And you did mention um, the AM. Thank you. Which was also, a, I had, obviously, I'm very honoured and feel very humbled by by that. I guess what is called the award of that because it means that somebody believed that the work that I do was worth a mention and, and meant to the great lengths to put together an application and so forth, a nomination. Yeah. But it was interesting for me because I'm a Republican yes. and, you know, I've long believed we, we should, our head of state should be, you know, we should have a president of the Republic of Australia, obviously. And so um, it was quite, uh, I sat on the email about the nomination for a little while and then talked to one of my elders about it because um, because it's you know part of the Queen's birthday list and it's from the DGG's office, but um, again it's really not it's not from uh, not from them really. It's an appointment, it's a nomination from the community. So um, I'm really thrilled about that. Yeah, that's the way I see it. I mean, to, to nominate mm. someone, mm. you have to go to, mm. to great lengths. It's not an easy process. It's a lengthy process. There's a yep. lot of paperwork, yep. but you know, yep. at the end of the day, it's just great to be recognised by by the community and to have someone think about you and nominate you for the work that you've done over the years. Exactly and to be right. Acknowledged exactly for that. Right. It's a nice thing. It really is. And apparently I should have had some champagne by now. So oh, really? I thought that out. Oh, taxpayer funded champagne. Oh, yeah. How nice. I don't know if it's taxpayer funded. <laughs> probably, but anyway, um, yeah, so that would be cheap. That been, it's been quite a big... It's been a quite quite a big couple of weeks actually, and um, 
And here we are chatting about Am I Black Enough for You tonight, I do believe. Is that correct? We are. We are talking about that and we're talking about the event that's coming up on uh, the 1st of yes. July, which is next Friday. Um, yeah, next Friday. Yes. Um, so let's talk about Am I Black Enough for You 10 years on. Um mm-hmm. A lot yes. has changed for you personally in the intervening 10 years since I'm black enough for you because mm-hmm. you don't stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to talk to you first up about, you know, what have you noticed that's changed in Australia during that time? If we could take it out to the macro for it for a bit. Over that intervening okay. 10 years, Australia has changed, you know, has either changed a lot or has changed a little. What have you noticed that's changed in attitudes towards First Nations people and all skin tones during that time? Well, I, I think what stood out stands out for me and what stood out for me when I was thinking about, you know, writing about the last 10 years are things, if I look at some of the positives first, um, because unfortunately there's still lots of negatives, uh, if I look at there's been this extraordinary renaissance, for example, in Indigenous writing, in First Nations writing. And we've seen, you know, writing prices and residencies being filled by black fellows. We've had five women of colour which were long-listed for the Seller Prize this year. Evelyn Araluen won that. That's, you know, one of the most prestigious writers' prizes uh, in the country. Of course, Professor Larissa Berent's just been uh, long-listed for the Miles Franklin, but we've also seen Tara June Winch and Melissa Lukashenko win it uh, in recent years. I mean, that is the the ultimate literary prize in the country. We've seen access to um, festivals and for First Nations writers just increase dramatically. Back in the day, you know, over 10 years ago, we'd have, um, you know, a few panels here and there. We'd be, for want of a better term, ghettoised into just pockets. And now we had, like, at the Brisbane Writers Festival this year, 36 of the creators on that program were First Nations. So now we're seeing First Nations people curating festivals and so forth. Uh, You know, Black Words now now has um, over 7,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander writers and storytellers indexed into that. We've got the Black and Right uh, Festival that Jane Harrison was artistic director of. I think there's been three of those in the last 10 years. So we've seen this fantastic renaissance in First Nations storytelling and writing. And so that, um, I think, is has also led to a greater awareness um, of us even around identity but around issues and themes that are important, should be important to all Australians, but need to be spoken about through the lens of First Nations peoples. So um, apropos of that, obviously we saw in 2020 the very public, tragic murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis Yep. And what we saw from that was, that, you know, an, an international Black Lives Matter movement, which was obviously picked up here in, in, in Queensland. I marched in Brisbane with 36,000 other people. I, I could not believe my eyes when I arrived at the march in, in Brisbane because nothing like that had ever been seen in terms of black deaths in custody in this country. But what it, what had happened then is we what was the conversation around the Black Lives Matter movement then made Australians start to think about. Um, racial bias and race theory and so forth, and we saw this absolute spike in sales in Australian publishing for books by First Nations peoples. Now, what my conversation in in Am I Black Enough for You is around the fact that we had a Black Lives Matter movement in this country for three decades. That's right. Since the um, yeah three decades, and it, but it took that long. It took the public murder of George Floyd for Australians to actually step up. 
But, of course, that's that's now gone quiet again. We've had even more um, First Nations people die in police custody since then. So I, I think there's quite a few things we've seen. We've seen... Um, Obviously, we've seen a change of government recently, which is which is fantastic because we, we're going to see some movement on the Uluru Statement and the treaty process and so forth. But also, um, for me, I think conversations around identity have shifted to mob actually driving the conversation. So for many, many years, as you'll know, and, and part of the first edition of Am I Black Enough You um, was was driven by a court case where yep. the conversations around who is and who's, who is not black and and um, and all the prescriptions of Aboriginality defined by a particular journalist. Um, and that was quite a common experience that we'd lived through for, you know, since the beginning of uh, First Contact when a caste system was created in this country to, you know, um, to separate black fellas, you know, yep. so half caste kids, you know, I'm doing inverted commas up here, you can't see that, but yeah, totally, um, would totally go to yeah. D- yeah, yeah, domestic servants and so forth and, and um, eventually we would all be bred out, you know, and we wouldn't be, we'd yep. be no longer the problem to be solved. Now, I think what we've seen in the last 10 years, particularly um, through literature also, um, through things like the Growing Up Aboriginal Anthology in Australia, we took hold of the conversation and that any conversation that would be in the public domain about identity that we would from now on be driving. And I think I've seen, I do a lot of work in schools um, and with in, in education. I, I gave a keynote to 400 secondary school principals last week in Wollongong. And that work, that particular work, and, I've, and through Catholic Ed as well, their leadership teams read that work and they said so to better to better um, arm them with the conversations that they need to have in the classroom. So there's not enough of us, as we know, to be in every classroom. That's never going to happen. So what we need to do is build scaffolding for teachers and leaders to be able to um, speak to issues when they come up in the classroom, particularly challenges by non-Indigenous kids. So I think I've seen a shift in the conversation, obviously since that court case most of us have been um, left to our own devices, but of course, that target of hatred it just gets focused on somebody else, right? And that, which yep. has happened. And I did see there's an article out um, in a publication today where there's a whole string of attacks around um, identity. I'm not going to talk about. I'm not going to mention the article or the journal because I don't want your listeners to go and look at it. Um, I was un- I unfortunately had to, you know, came into my inbox, but. I don't want to give them any more cred. So I think I've seen, you know, we've had COVID, we've seen how our communities banded together, particularly even with the floods recently, but down Lismore, the Corey Mail led the led the way there in getting that community or trying to get elements of that community back on their feet without in, in lieu of, you know, governments doing what needed to be done. So I don't know. Time up yet or what? It's yeah, no, that's our time for this evening, Anita. Thank you so much. <laughs> you <think that? laughs> no, 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 no. We're only Sorry just getting started. That. We're only just getting started. Um, okay. It is. It is uh, seven thirty. You're listening to the Mission on one hundred two point seven Triple R F M. I'm speaking with uh, Dr. Anita Heiss, AM, about the. I guess it's um, it's an update of uh, her book. Am I black enough for you? Ten years on. Um, I think it's a real sort of snowball effect, isn't it, Anita? Is, is like we we have 
this plethora of brilliant writers and storytellers, Indigenous storytellers around at the moment that are, you know, each sort of hitting their peaks at slightly different times, but they're really adding to the... I guess, the national discussion on these matters. But at the same time, I get a very, very strong sense that the the general public, the, the, the broader public is open to hearing these stories for the first time. And that's allowing us to go into a deeper and deeper dive, seemingly with every year that passes in terms of discussing the issues and what's at the heart of some of these issues, things like generational, intergenerational trauma, for instance. Do you sense mm-hmm. that, that the audience has got its ears sort of open wider than they've ever been? Oh, absolutely. I, I think you've just, you're spot on there. Um, I was in Bellingen um, a couple of weeks ago with Nadi Simpson and um, Michaela Saunders, who has just released the world's First, or just edited the world's first anthology of First Nations speculative fiction. And the three of us were in a marquee. It was completely sold out. So I don't know, maybe it was 100, 150 people in that marquee. And every single one of them were there. That They paid their $30, whatever it was, to come along. And I, I'm i less nervous in those venues than I am where, in free venues where, where there's more. If those, you know, keyboard warriors may turn up or hecklers and so forth. And I, every single person that was there came with an open mind and an open heart to listen to whatever it was that we were going to talk about. So, you know, they, they didn't know what we were going to talk about. We just we talked about a whole lot of a whole range of things, you know, accountability to community, why we write and so forth. Um, and I see that increasingly, um, particularly at festivals and so forth. Um, and and as I get invited to speak more and more to corporates and in the education sector, because I think it's not just blackfellas who are tired of having to be sidelined in conversations about our lives and our stories um, and policies that affect us. There's a whole group of Australians who, you know, probably call themselves allies, um, who also see that it is no longer, um, what never was, but no longer can be tolerated that we are um, on the fringes of the conversations that should be that we should be driving and leading and so forth about our lives. So I, I see, you know, as I mentioned, the Brisbane Writers Festival, all those sessions that I went to, I tried to go to as many First Nations sessions at the same, at minimum at the same time. But there were so many people in those audiences just wanting to hear the stories that ranged from people having been removed and their lives and so, their life stories and so forth to um, two stories of feminism. And we had Arnie Jackie uh, Huggins and uh, Professor Aileen Morton Robinson um, on the program. And, you know, their works came out. So Aileen's work came out. 21 years ago now, talking up to the white woman, and that was re-released last year. Jackie yeah. Huggins' essay, Sister, Sister Girls. These are all getting new life because the audiences are increasing, as you've pointed out, and people now are turning to um, us for their learning, for engagement, and for trying to understand a better way forward because obviously we've had nine years of having of not having any way forward at all. Yep. Um, and so it's, I feel like there's a new sense of um, of passion for what we've got to say. And if you think a, about, I mean, we just had all the, sorry. No, no, go on. No, 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 go, go, continue. Well, we just, we, obviously we just had a, this terrible flooding in Lismore. We've had terrible, terrible floods up here in Brisbane. I was evacuated for four days and my whole street flooded. And um, 
uh, you know, it was interesting because I'd written this novel last year, Billy Adadangalang, can't even say my own title, Billy Adadangalang Duray, uh, about the Great Flood of Gundagai. And when I was, and it's only in recent years, since the bushfires of 2020, the the devastating bushfires, that Australians started to actually listen to and understand the role of Indigenous knowledges in in land and that, you know, cultural burns prevented bushfires and in effect would save lives. And so with the floods back in 1852, the Great Flood of Gundagai, when a third of the town drowned and four men actually went on bark canoes, but two men, Yadi and Jackie Jackie, saved um, 59 lives while a third of the town drowned. The reality is it's documented that back in 1838 when the town of Gundagai was gazetted, that local Wiradjuri people told the settlers not to build on the floodplain because it had... It, it, it flooded before and it'll flood again. And I feel like it's only since these most recent natural disasters that that knowledge that's been, you know, millennia old is only now starting to be listened to. Yeah, we've had some huge bushfires down here in Victoria. We had Ash Wednesday. We had oh, yes. um, Black, yes. Black Saturday. And um, all those terrible, terrible bushfires where, um, you know, hundreds of people lost their lives. But I'm totally, totally agree with you. It wasn't until the the 2020 um, bushfires that, you know, know, a huge swathes of um, the Australian bush along the east coast and in South Australia were, were, were burnt up, that all of a sudden people are beginning to, to, to pay an interest in traditional ways and ways of managing the land. And I think, again, it's, for one of what a bit of a better term, it's that snowball effect where it was almost kind of intuitive for the national discussion to then go to uh, First Nations traditional owners around the place and start mm. speaking to them about land management. So I've always been a firm mm. believer that story will change this place and that that will result in better outcomes for our people. And I think that that's mm. a kind of an example of it, don't you think? Absolutely. And I, while you, and I, I personally believe that stories are great bridge builders that, um, you know, we talk about storytelling, but I think what we need to talk about is story listening. And I think that what I'm seeing is more and more people coming to the table to listen to, to First Nations stories. I did want to give a quick shout-out to one of my mob, um, beautiful Roger Mandine Freeman, who has been running cultural burns down on country and also around Canberra and so forth for many years now. And he actually has mob go out and, and you know, it's, it's actually an activity that people do together. And, and I think um, that needs to be duplicated across the country, and I'm sure it happens in other places as well. But I think you're right, storytelling. I firm believe I had a chat to my publisher today and I said, you know, let's just keep trying to change the world one book at a time, whether it's poetry or whether it's, um, you know, a kid's picture book, um, because there's all these beautiful books that come out of Magabala that I never had growing up that yeah. are now um, in use in classrooms. But I read every single picture book they publish and I learn something nearly every every time, whether it's a moral or whether it's, um, you know, just a way to look at the world differently. So I think, um, you know, everybody has a role to play in, in, in the world and in life and we all do different things. But I think stories, whether it's too old elders sitting on a veranda having a cup of tea and sharing stories or whether it's you and I having a yarn on the radio or whatever or kids in the playground 
stories connect us, then they bring us together and they transport us to places that we might not otherwise go. And I think um, in terms of our the stories coming out of our communities, that's what this nation needs because as we move forward in the process of truth-telling in this country, what that means is our truths, I mean, I would say our autobiographies and our biographies are our history books that we've been so conditioned in this country, or the world over, you know, that you've got to read an academic textbook to learn history. That's absolutely not true. You would know this. You can you can learn history through through theatre and through song. I mean, from little things, big things grow. One of the greatest yep. history lessons there is in a beautiful song about Vincent Mingardi and the way he'll walk off in the Gurindji mob. So there are many ways to to learn history and, and many forms of storytelling. I wonder, now I'm thinking back to, to when um, Am I Black mm-hmm. Enough um, came out and your involvement in the, the Bolt versus EDOC case. I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, how much of a turning point that was because if that said columnist had been able to get away with publishing that article, um, and I'll, I'll refer to it, mm-hmm. I don't encourage you to go and read it, but mm-hmm. um, it's called What is the New mm-hmm. Black? Mm-hmm. Um, and it mentioned some of my ancestors and some of my relatives in it. So I thank you for being involved in the case. But I wonder where we would be now if he wasn't found in breach of the Racial Discrimination Act like he was, which is a very, very, very difficult thing to do. You have to go out of your way to be found in breach of that act, let me assure yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you think things it's would be now if that uh, didn't happen? Did, oh, that was my great fear. My great fear was that you know, the whole point of me going into that case was because I wanted I wanted Australian media to be accountable for what they said in 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 this case about Aboriginal people and that and I wanted them to understand that they could not continue to persecute us and it wasn't just him. I mean, he was he he was on the you know there was him. There was a lot of journalists who are, who would call themselves friends or colleagues of mine that defended his right to free speech, which yeah. horrified me. But I think, um, and to be honest with you, I I looked forward to the day that the judgment was being handed down, and I had all intention to go to Melbourne um, to have a say because when I got I went I was called to court, and on the day was not put on the stand and I was a bit disappointed by that because I wanted to have my say. And then I just thought, what if, what if Judge Bromberg does not find him to have breached the Racial Discrimination Act? And I think what would happen, it just would have been open slather. Would have been open yeah. slather, and um, and I, the fact that he was found in breach of the Racial Discrimination Act meant it put journalists, and I lose I use that term loosely because I don't really consider him a journalist, but I, I put journalists or the media the media as it were on notice that you cannot well first of all you can't lie about people. You just can't tell lies about people and you cannot incite racial hatred. And um and if so, if you do, then you will face, you know, the the, the letter of the law. And so um I, I mean I have noticed obviously um, there was some when so that happened in twenty. We went to court twenty eleven. My book came out in twenty twelve. I'd already started writing the book before the case. And, yeah, you can't um, just magic a book up that then, quickly. 
No, no, that's right. And then my book came out the next year. And then, of course, I went through a whole new round of race hate and, and emails from people calling me every N-word under the sun and what if I come to your events and so forth. And I had a bodyguard for an event at the Wheeler Centre, which was quite and traumatic at the time. And um, I laugh about it now because I say a little bit like Whitney Houston. But, um, <laughs> it, you know, this is, to me, I think this is not the world that I live in or that you live in or that we live in. It's not the society I want to live in. And I went to court after having a, a conversation with Larissa Green on the phone. Um, you know, we were undergrad students together. We've been known each other for 35 years. And, um, and I didn't know about the law. I didn't know what it would entail. And I went because I wanted... I didn't want to live in a society where where the media had no responsibility and no accountability to what they said. And I was I used to chair the Australian Society of Authors. I've been an advocate for author rights for many, many, many years. But with 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 the rights you have as an author, also comes a, a responsibility and a code of ethics on on researching and on what you put in the public domain. And as an author, I believe, and as a reader, I believe that um, the the reader deserves the, the best book or newspaper, as it were, um, on the shelf or on the table that they go to buy. And that means that the research must have been done. And, and I personally believe my own methodology is that it's not worth anything if you have to disempower someone to reach your, your word count or to write your book or your column or whatever. And so I think... Um, if I did nothing else in my life, like I sat in that courtroom and I thought about our warriors and I thought about our, my old people and I thought I'm sitting there in, in, in Melbourne and I'm completely safe, nobody, you know, I'm completely, well, physically safe as it were and um, what good am I if I just can't do this one thing and if I did nothing else, I, I would die being glad that we did that because um, I still have people say to me, thank you because I didn't do it for me because I could have just probably done a defamation case and paid off my mortgage. You know, this was about all of us coming together saying the media needs to change. And so in the new edition of Am I Black Enough You, all of that, because it's 10 years now and, Mm. you know, I try to have days and weeks where that's not mentioned because it was very traumatic and, um, um, because, you know, becoming the target of race hate on a daily basis makes you think, what is wrong with the psyche of this nation when there's so many people filled with hate? Um, and um, so now all that information is now pushed to the back of the book. So before that, you'll read all about Indigenous excellence and you'll read about <laughs> Kathy Freeman and you'll read about Adam Goods. There's some questions for Australians in there about Adam Goods and why he was treated so appallingly. But you'll also read 20 Reasons Why You Should Read Black um, and for, for ladies, if you're going through menopause, there's something in there for you. If uh, if you're a runner, I'm hope that my, you know, I started long distance running in my mid 40s, ran my first marathon on the eve of my 49th birthday, um, and I hope that my my running at Uluru and the New York marathon um, inspires others. You know, I'm about to head to Melbourne, as we know, next week for the NADOC ball. And on the on that morning, I'm going to run a half marathon with my cousin Mitch Hibbins, and for the clothing, the clothing, the gaps, um, they do a virtual, and they have the most beautiful medals, which is why I run. I run for the medals. <laughs> for I the run bling. for the 
I ran for the bling, I ran for the almond croissants and the cocktails and the naughty food that you can have at the end. Um, but I run for my mental health as well. If I run for, you know, it makes you feel good. And you also, when you're out there in nine degrees at seven o'clock in the morning, you're pretty self-righteous and you're well, loving yourself you, thinking makes, on you better makes, than every. <laughs> makes you feel alive and it makes you just look smug through other people's uh, windows, not in a pervy way, but just True. in a sort of like a passing way so that people are still in the fetal position, snoring their heads off at that time in the morning, and would, I would imagine, give you an amount of self-righteousness, yes. The yes. Only thing that's would you wrong like is... to join us? Would you like to join um, us next week? Oh, look, I'll get... It's look, only I'll call you. <laughs> I'll call you. Um, <laughs> Can you also about... call my people, and by my people, <laughs> yeah. I mean me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, okay. there. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um... Look, I think we've run out of time. We've got to let you go to bed um, or go to sleep because you already are in bed. Um, but the yeah. event is uh, next week, and it's uh, Am I Black Enough uh, 10 years on, and it's uh, Anita Heiss, Dr. Anita Heiss, who we've been speaking to this evening in conversation. It starts at 12, goes through to around about 2 p.m., and it's at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre Trust at 210 Lonsdale Street. That's the old Queen Victoria Women's Building. And if you want tickets, go to eventbrite.com. If you want to hear more of this fabulous conversations and insights from this, dare I say it, Anita, great Australian. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, you <laughs> dared to say it. Okay, I dared to say you. it, yeah. I will, thank you. Well, I will say there's actually seven tickets left for free for mob. So if you're mob listening and you want to come along, um, go, go to the Eventbrite page and... Um, Tick the right boxes. To 2020, tick that box and it's free. And to the others, we'd love to see you there. And I want to shout out to um, Maria Demopoulos, Asanta Marone and uh, Hannah Safiri from the Morocco Soup Bar because it was their idea. And I've asked them to read the book and I want them to give their – they're going to pick something out that spoke to them and then we'll have a conversation and, and spend – I haven't been to this beautiful place. It's meant to be a fantastic venue. And so it'll be yeah. a great afternoon. Yeah. Yep, it'll be great. So get along, uh, eventbrite.com. Am I black enough for you 10 years on? And the book itself is still available in bookshops all over the place. So uh, go and check it out and uh, go along. Use it as a compendium for the discussion on uh, Friday, July 1st, 12pm at the Queen Victoria's Women's Centre's Trust. Um, Dr. Anita Heiss, AM, thank you so much once again for coming on the show. Uh, we'll no doubt speak to you again. And if I feel like um, running in the early hours of the morning, I'll give you a call. <laughs> I've had a ball tonight. Thank you so much for the chat and have a great week. And I'll see you mob down in Melbourne at the NAIDOC ball or running along St Kilda or wherever. Thank you, Anita. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Uh, my deep thanks to Dr. Anita Heiss for coming along and having a yarn with us this evening. Um, if, like I said, if you want to go and see her in conversation next Friday, at 12 o'clock, just go to eventprite.com to, to book yourself a ticket. Uh, Superfluity are up next. If I'd known sooner, I would have actually put um, Waiting on a Friend by the Rolling Stones as the finished song here. But because this is the mission, we're going to go out with uh, a bit of Charlie. Um, if you're there, Clem, uh, happy birthday to you. And um, stick around. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay strong, and stay listening, my good listeners. Ta-da. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission. 
a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>